Hi, I'm Dr. Matthews, and I teach on campus at Southern New Hampshire University, and I am so excited that you have decided to take a moment to view the recording, Ethics in Action, What Does It Mean to Be a Good Person? As you're watching the recording, I really challenge you to think about what does it mean to be a good person to you personally, in your community, in society, in the world, as you're viewing the recording, really think about what the panelists are talking about and what they're sharing and how you can apply this these points in your personal life. All right, um, hello everyone and welcome to the first ever SNU conference in collaboration with Sohegan High School's Ethics Forum. We couldn't be more excited for tonight. I mean, look at the turnout. Uh, I really want to do like congratulate you guys for being out here tonight. It's really moving to see that people our age, people of the next generation, are actually really willing to learn about the tools that they can use to better their community, better those around them, and really get engaged in their lives and those around them. So thank you all for being here. We're your MCs. We'll be guiding you through the night. Uh, my name is Zara. I'm a freshman here at SNU. Uh, I'm majoring in psychology with a concentration in child and adolescent development. Hi everyone, I'm Lynn. I am a sophomore at SNU and right now pursuing a double major in politics and global affairs and sociology. I'm Jaren, I'm a senior at Sohegan High School. Um, and I'm Lauren and I am also a senior at Sohegan High School. Today we'll be, going, we will be discussing the essential question, what does it mean to be a good person? We also want to get you guys thinking about some other essential questions. We're going to be calling these the sub-EQs, and those are, how does environment impact the people that we are and the people we become? What does it mean to be a good citizen? How does one improve themselves? And how can someone influence those around them to be better? In today's world, division, extremism, and hate have made the collective morals of humanity falter, leading us to ask such a question, a question you will all be exploring today. There are repercussions to everything we do and everything we say, whether they're known or not. This is the nature of our complex world, and such nature has led us to ethical crossroads. Please join us in welcoming our three esteemed guests, Mr. Sam Fuller, Dr. Peter Levine, and, Doc, and Mr. Deo Muano. Unfortunately, Sam Fuller, he, he will be here, but he is running a little bit late. Um, thank you so much, guys, for joining us tonight. We would love to hear about who you are, so please take some time to introduce yourself. Check. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Dale, Dale Moano. I uh, live in Goffstown. I've been living in New Hampshire for the last 23 years, and I run a consultative firm where my team and I, we help organizations maximize on their positive impact. So I'm excited to be here with you all. Hi, I'm Peter Levine. I'm a professor at Tufts University. I'm a philosophy, political science professor. And I also do research that involves things like young people's voting and civic engagement and civic education. So that's partly why I'm here. 
Thanks for having us. And I know this is a really good group because I've many, many times told groups of people to consolidate at smaller tables, and they've never done it at all when I've told them to do that. And when you did it, they all actually consolidated. So it's obviously a great, great group. All right, so we'd first like to just ask you guys a couple general questions just to give everyone a better feel for who you are, what you stand for, where you're involved with. Um, so I guess, uh, Mr. Milano, if you'd like to go first, um, in your respective field, how have you seen improvement in yourself? And not only just yourself, but those around you. How has what you do bettered yourself? And also with that momentum, how do you keep yourself from becoming stagnant? We're to start with the big question, huh? <laughs> Hi, how are you? <laughs> Golly. I, I don't really like sitting, so I'm going to stand up because that's, that's what I do. Um, so just to give a little bit of context, um, in the work that my team and I do, we get brought in to help improve the experiences of either students, employees, communities. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of our work, we're in a... Most of the time, it's in a frictional, you know, in order to bring change, there's usually some friction. So, and it has to do with people, right? Human behavior. So, um, the thing that always kind of keeps me grounded is when we're assessing an opportunity, we always try to figure out um, what's the skin in the game that the organization have through the process of whatever we're going to discover. Um, and then at times when we feel like there might not be an alignment between what our principles are, we, we sometimes have to step away from it. But when we're in it, the big thing, this, our secret sauce is like building relationship, like building authentic relationship with people. So part of that for us is about identifying our own preconceived notions that we might have around people and their behaviors and being able to call it out at real time so we, so we can get to know the employees or the organization at their face value. And um, so for me, that's like, that's like the starting principle, making sure that um, I'm able to identify my own perspective and point of views I might have around a situation and making sure that I can censor it so I can meet the people that I'm working with at its face value. Um, there's a lot of challenging stuff that comes out of the work that we do. I mean, just a quick example, one of our partners that we're working with right now, and we've been working with for the last year and a half, um, you know, some of the stuff that, we, that they're experiencing is like inequity around pay, right? Inequity around time off, inequities around percentage of raise, right, across the entire organization. Uh, during, um, at the end of last year, the organization that we're consulting, they decided to um, give a bonus, but the bonus was based on a percentage, but there were certain folks that worked frontline workers that were there during the COVID on a daily basis versus the people that were working remotely. So the folks that were frontline felt like it wasn't equitable because some people make, you know, six figures where they made, you know, below six figures. So those are the type of stuff that we are faced on a consistent basis. And going back to your question, you know, we come back to that moral, like that moral grounding, right? Like, what are you trying to accomplish and why are we here? Um, so that's my answer. I think, um, and then part of it is just being honest, right? Like being honest and being truthful around the experience that you're experiencing um, and allowing the voices of others be the driver. Uh, so that's what grounds me. 
Thank you. Um, I'm I would just first like to welcome Mr. Sam Fuller. Oh, right. Hey. <laughs> he said, sorry, he's late. The mic is off. Can you guys hear me? <laughs> I was looking for the second floor dining hall in Sauhegan High School for 20 minutes. <laughs> the events here. Happens to the best of us. I hope not. <laughs> So, so, Mr. Fuller, um, I would just like you, please feel free to introduce yourself. Sure. Uh, my name is Sam Fuller. I went to SNU, been in this building quite a bit. Um, I'm the CEO of the Sound of a Smile program. I run volunteer trips to South Africa. We rebuild schools, refurbish homes. We do after-school programs, sports programs, tutoring. Um, I'm also a backhoe operator in the city of Boston. And I run a campaign in the winters called Backhoe Santa, where I dress up as Santa Claus and raise money for the Salvation Army. Thanks. So um, what inspires people to become, uh, to become better people? Uh, this is just for anyone to, if you feel like you can answer it. I mean, one, one kind of answer quickly might also describe what Deotrys has said before, um, which is other people inspire you to be better people. I mean, I think about why I do things that are hopefully good. It's almost always because I'm in a relationship with somebody who needs it, who's often actually asked. Um, and so I'm doing it because I know the person and I feel like I have to, I have to do it because I'm, and I think though your work is, we haven't really heard that much from you yet, but I think what your work is about is partly creating the opportunities for people to ask for the right things from each other. 100%. The other, I, the other quick thing I would say is um, you have choices in the moment um, all the time, like sitting here on this panel, I have a choice about what to say, um, but you also have bigger picture choices about which, situ which kind of life you're gonna live, um, and that determines what choices you make. So, um, so I'm making certain choices because I'm a college professor. I would be making different choices if I had a different job. And it's not just about jobs, it's also about what communities you live in, who your, who your loved ones are. And those things um, put you in a position where you can make different choices. So if, um, yeah, so if you're a, you know, a stockbroker, a sniper in the US Marines, uh, you know, you're gonna be making different choices. Whatever the, whatever the situation is, you should make the cho best choices you can, but probably a bigger factor is what situation you're gonna put yourself in, especially for young people because you still have more choice about that. Um, I have a great example of how people affect you in life and exactly how much they affect you. The reason that I run this volunteer program in South Africa is because when I was here at SNU, my best friend at the time, Nick Carey, had gone on a service learning program trip in 2013 to the same village that I work in now. And he came back to my house right when he got back, and he goes, Sam, you need to come on this trip, you need to come to Africa with us, and you need to see what it's all about. When your best friend who you trust tells you something like that, you listen. So I went, changed my life drastically. Two years later, me and Nick had always talked about going back to Africa. 
Um, Nick had done a bunch of volunteer work at the Salvation Army, unsolicited to any of his friends. He would go there five days a week, not mention a thing about it. That's just what he did. In 2016, we lost Nick to suicide. And when Nick committed suicide, I spent a year making horrible choices. And then after that year, I started making a bunch of the right choices. And one of those choices was to go back to Africa in remembrance of Nick. It was only supposed to be one time to go back for Nick. I leave tomorrow for Africa for our fifth year. And that's all because my best friend at the time was just doing good stuff. If you surround yourself with people who do good stuff, eventually you're gonna start doing good stuff. Do good stuff. Um, I just wanted to go back to your question. Um, and your question was what inspires people to be good people? So I, I wanted to start with just kind of breaking that down a little bit because good is relative, right? Meaning people have their own definition of what is good. And I think there's two parts of it, right? I think what inspires people to be good for themselves, I think we, we're all in the journey to decide what good is for us versus what good is and how we show up. And unfortunately, sometimes the definitions that we put behind certain things, sometimes it clouds our perspective holistically of what good might be for other people because there's certain morals and principles that are instilled in you that you hold on to, right? And those principles might come from your family dynamic, it might come from the school that you go to, it might come from the books that you read, the movies that you watch, the social media circles that you're in, what Twitch channel that you might play video game on, right? All of those are influences that shapes who we are. So that also shapes how we define what good is. But unfortunately, what might be good to you might not be good to me, right? So I think it's important to kind of be able to dissect that and figure out where does the influence of good, the good that you've defined as good, where does that influence come from? And what does it mean for you? But then what does it also mean to others, the people that you might engage with? Um, because I, I think if we, if we talk about it from a concept standpoint of good, we might be lying to ourselves of that we all have an alignment of what good is, because the reality is we don't. And I think if it's on the receiving end, it's really important to be able to check in with those who are around you and how you're showing up to make sure that it represents that, right? If you want to be a good person in how you show up engaging with others, to a certain extent of that, the measurement is on those who are on the receiving end to actually let you know if you're being good or not, right? So I just, I just wanted to touch on that a little bit because I feel like we're, in the society that we live in, we're, we're divided. And we're, a lot of times we're actually divided by what people define what good is, right? Just look at our current political state, our climate, our social climate structures, right? Um, and I think it's really important to be able to have that reflection of what you define good for yourself and how you show up and what you define good as how you show up to others. So that's my answer to that. Um, thank you. That was a perfect segue into our next question. Um, how do you guys think the actions of individuals impact society? 
Um, <clears throat> I think one of the best parts about doing good stuff, um, you brought up a great point of how to define good stuff. Um, even the small things that you do throughout a day affect people probably far greater than you would imagine. Whether that's holding the door for someone, saying hi to someone, even the smallest of things, it makes a difference. That person may go on to do something good for somebody else that day, and the dominoes just continue to fall. Um, it usually, I mean, it, everything starts with one person trying to do something good. Um, I think as you all get older, you'll see that when you start to do good stuff, there are other people in the world that will come to your aid to help you do good stuff. And it just starts with a small thing. And then it's a snowball effect. At least we would all like to think so, but it's a snowball effect. So even doing the small stuff means a lot. I certainly agree with that, but um, I'd like to put in a plug for the group too. So, because um, there's two problems with the individual. One is we're not very powerful or strong by ourselves. And the other is we're not very wise by ourselves, right? We're, and this goes to what you were talking about. Um, so we, uh, we just are actually, we're kind of weak and stupid by ourselves. Um, and so uh, groups are critical. Now, the groups often do get started in a snowflake, snowflake way by an individual. But at a certain point, you've got to be in a group. And then the group's processes matter because, um, because in fact, people are going to have different concepts of the good in the group. And the real question then is how are you going to get through that to some kind of agreement that brings out something better in you. So your question was kind of pushing on what differences in any individual make, and I would say not much unless the individual gets into a group. So I'm gonna go back to your question. Um, how do you think the actions of others affects the society? I think I don't know if this is supposed to be rhetorical or not, but society is made up of a bunch of human beings that behave certain ways, and and I think the actions are, you know, it impacts others positively, and then at times it impacts others negatively, right? I don't think Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, it's I feel like I feel like the question needs a little bit more, <laughs> you know, follow up to that. I think it, go, it goes back to the, how I answered my previous question. Our actions, you know, our actions mean something, and our actions comes from our, you know, our behaviors, how we behave within the society that we're in. There's an impact. There's a good impact, there's a negative impact. And sometimes, depending on the lens that you're looking at things, it might be positive in one way, but then in another way, it might be negative. So for instinct, here's just a little quick example, I'll make it personal. Um, today, the EV industry is a big thing, right? So when we think about our environment and you know, stepping away from fossil fuel, but most of, most of the EVs that are out there today use this raw mineral called cobalt. And 85% of the world's cobalt comes out of a country called Congo. 
I was born and raised in Congo, okay? And it, it's not going to take much for you to get this information. If you Googled mines in the Congo and see the conditions that people have to go through in order to extract these raw minerals, you would, you know, you would feel, you would feel bad. But that same raw minerals is also in most of our cell phones, okay? So, but when we go for, from, from a fossil fuel standpoint, we're like, oh yeah, EV, EVs are great, right? Electric vehicles are great. But then when you look at the negative impact that those electrical vehicles are causing in terms of how those raw minerals are being extracted, then it kind of, depending on what your priorities are, if you're like, I care about the human conditions and human beings, but then you're like, I also care about the environment, then you're, you're, you're stuck in this middle predicament where you have to say, you know, is EV, EVs good or are they bad, right? And that's for you to make your own judgment. So I, I do think that, you know, I think it's important for us to know that our actions, they, they do, they do impact our society and there is different lenses that we can look at the issue. I think where you have the responsibility is whatever your moral compass is that's driving what you prioritize on for you to make a sound decision on how you want to show up and how you want to behave. I think that's the opportunity that we all have. So sorry for a long answer, but I just wanted to give context to that. It's actually a really important and good example. And can I just build on it quickly? Um, actually, I should ask you guys. Because um, two things out of, come out of that story for me. One is you, you, in order to make the world better, you need to know things. So what he said is true, but it's not that well known and you need to know it. But the other is you need to think uh, strategically. So if the choice is I get an electric car and I'm um, using cobalt from Congo or I don't get an electric car and I'm using oil from um, anywhere, um, that's a bad choice. So how do you change the choices? And that's, that's strategic. That's a strategic question and it's a hard, I mean, I don't know the answer, especially not on that. That's a very hard issue. But um, if there's an answer, it's a, it's a strategic answer. It's not an individual choice answer because the individual choice you're being given is a bad individual choice. I'm gonna to add to that real quickly as well. Number one, I don't, I don't have your name yet, but you're, oh, Dale. Dale, okay. He's 100% right, and you guys should all look up what's going on in the Congo right now. Um, to add to what you said, yes, everyone in here has the internal question of do I buy an EV car, and you look at the negatives. I'm under the impression that the negatives from the cobalt industry are all human-made. We have the smartest people in the world that run Apple, Google, Tesla, and those people have made the choice for you not to create the correct supply chain to get the cobalt. They've made the choice for you. So much like he was saying, the conditions in cobalt are horrible. If you watch the videos, we're talking about thousands upon thousands of people digging usually by shovels and by hands in mines that are extremely unsafe, that collapse all the time. Those people are not dug back up. You should all look into it, because it's all going into your cell phones that are in your pocket. It's very good to look into it. Can I, can I just, I, I'm just gonna add one more thing. I think, I think when, we, when we talk about this, this concept in a, like a philosophical way, it's easier to make it you know, very, like unrealistic to the reality. I think 
in every bucket of decisions, there's, there's ways that those things break down, right? So going back to the, 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 the EV examples, right? It's almost like you have these two diagrams. One diagram is, you know, EV and you're breaking out. What are the positives, right? So, but part of that is also for us to not be so having the, the open mind to, co to constantly learn. Because when we learn, we start figuring out what the, the undertone or the backbone of cer certain things are. So when you start bringing it out, you can, you can write down, right, here the positive, here the negative. And then the other side, too, here the positive and here the negative, right? And then through your discovery, you might learn more than what's just being presented on the surface. And then you can, you know, you can make a sound decision. Of, but sometimes, I mean, like right now, a lot of the EV industry are beginning to try to find alternative ways of making batteries where it doesn't rely on cobalt, right? But it's going to take a very long time for that to happen before that, before that occurs. But then on the other side of it, some of those same places where those raw minerals are coming out of are also the same places where those raw minerals end up going into the cell phones, the PlayStation, the Blu-ray, like all the, pretty much most of the technology we use, Colton and Cobalt is like one of the key element, right? So I think that part of you diving deeper is your ability to educate yourself on whatever the issue is. Here, I just gave an example of the EV industry, but it could be on anything. So I think, but our society doesn't present stuff that way, right? Our society most, most of the time is gonna present stuff at its face value and we're, we're given a chance to make a decision. For instance, when, even when we think about war, right? So when, when the US decided to invade Iraq, there was a narrative that was presented, right? And a lot of times that narrative was kind of grouped everyone in one bucket. But a lot of us lost the ability to think that, yeah, there's also civilians that are gonna be on the other side of it who have nothing to do with you know, whatever we're fighting for. But the higher narrative is what we end up gravitating to in order to make sense of what's good and bad. But when you start unpacking it, you start realizing there's other nuances to the situation. And sometimes we don't want to think about the other nuances, right? Because then it forces us to, to reflect on ourselves and what our choices are. But that's how media is provided is presented to all of us, right? It's presented at a super high level where we're forced to make a choice without having to dive and dig deeper. And unfortunately, a lot of the algorithm in our social platforms also behave the same way. It's just reflecting whatever anecdotal alignment or you know, dopamine connections that you've had with several videos that are five seconds, 10 seconds that you've liked. That algorithm is gonna continue to feed you the same stuff. And before you know it, you think you've made sense to a situation, but it's just the algorithm that reflected your own bias, right? So I'm just going back. I'm just, I just want to really encourage you all to be critical thinkers that are willing to dive deeper in the areas that you're passionate about, that you care about, so you can have a sound decision in what your involvement is around the particular situation. Because if, if you don't do that, then you know, you might, you might end up in, you know, rooting for something that might not even align with your morals. Sorry, I feel like I'm going off. Sorry about that. I'll shut up.
You do not have to shop. We love hearing from all of you, and we're so grateful that you're here. Um, we're going to move on to individual questions. So um, for Dr. Levine, um, we would love to ask, like, what do you believe are the three most important skills for someone going into civics and politics at this time? And tough question, and this is an unrehearsed answer. I think um, going back to what I said earlier about why groups are so important, I'm probably going to want to answer with the ways you have to operate in a group. And so um, one thing is just to make groups functional. So actually, you guys brought this off, which is, I think, made this happen. Not only you, but you and some of other people. Yes? So there's a lot of... Um, nitty-gritty skill involved in that, of getting people in the same room at the same time with food, scheduling it, um, getting the budget together. You look like you're trying to uh, give credit to other people. You, I mean, it's like a whole Well, I'm, I'm, talking about a, I'm talking about you plural, a bunch of people. But there's a lot of organizational skill there that, is, um, that comes down to trying to align people's actions so that they coordinate and get things done. Um, and that is super hard and actually it's unusual to have a group this big that's been driven a lot by students and so it's congratulations. It's also um, something we don't learn super well in contemporary America for various reasons. So we've, we, the traditional way we learned it was by watching older people do it, but older people aren't doing it. It being organizing just things like meetings. So, so, one, so in short, one skill would be just organizing things like meetings and which involves things also like money. So budgets and dates and calendars and all those kinds of things is one piece. The second thing is what you're I think, going to do after we get off the panel, which is have the conversations at your tables. And those are going to be conversations where there are going to be value differences. And so my second skill would be um, having conversations with people who disagree with you in which you can get through to some kind of better wisdom. So the first thing is just organizing stuff because otherwise you can't have a conversation. The second is having a conversation around difference so that you can reach some kind of conclusion. And the third thing is affecting bigger systems, like what you were talking about, including as far away as another continent. And that means working with or against people who aren't with you. It means people who are distant. So that, those are skills of advocacy and sometimes of, of um, resistance. I think, I think I'm going to stick with that answer. Thank you for your insight. Uh, Mr. Moano, I would like to ask you a question. Um, so you began public speaking across the country at the age of 12, is that right? Um, and today, you continue your work with young adults. Why do you think it is important to empower young voices? I mean, you've already stated the importance to stay educated, right? That we are presented oftentimes information that is biased or that's leaning one way or another. So it is in our hands, it is our responsibility to seek those truths and to therefore form our own opinions. But why do you feel that it's important for us to do that? Yeah, th thank you for that question. Um, I think it's important because we all have a responsibility in how we show up every day. And then the, the other piece of it is like, we're also, like we're, if we're constantly evolving. And I think, you know, the younger we are, the better it is 
in how we make sense of our norm or even make sense of who we are and how we're going to be. And so part of that is, I think there's an opportunity here because sometimes the older we get, the more we might become more protective around ideologies that shaped us. And sometimes it's much harder to try to change those ideology later on in life because we've made sense of our last 30 years based on those principles. But the younger you are, you constantly have an opportunity to continue to, to challenge your own norm of what you've, you know, what you've decided are the core principle. And I think the more opportunity you have to, to expand upon it, the better it informs what you do. And I think what you do now is actually super critical because it sets the stage of what you're going to do as you continue to move forward. So for me, she just mentioned that I, I started speaking when I was 11 years old. Um, I was involved with a community outreach program that did a lot of work in inner city America all over the country. And um, I have a really crazy backstory. I grew up in the Congo, and um, my father ended up getting assassinated. My family moved to America. And that story was, the people in that program felt that that story was very compelling. So they would put me on the microphone at homeless shelters, at after-school programs, at drug rehab programs, all, all over the country. And my story would bring hope. Couldn't even speak English well. Um, I didn't really have the best socioeconomic background, but I would get on the mic and tell my story, and I saw people get moved by it. Um, and that kind of sparked, kind of my my the the, the my, my giving back, being involved with my community, and that that segued it from an 11 years old all the way. By the time I got to Middle school, I was involved with a lot of stuff in my community by the time I got to high school. And then when I got in college, the same thing. So I, I think that I think that, that the purpose that we grab onto in, in, in what drives what we want to do as humans, I think it's really important to have that, that giving back mentality, but also normalizing the friction, you know, because the friction is when you're doing the work, right? So here's a quick example. At the height of 20, at, at the, in the middle of the pandemics, our federal government decided to start giving out resources to help businesses stay afloat. And I started to get a lot of emails from local um, BIPOC business owners that were saying, hey, what are these support that are out there? And a lot of them, we're not getting these resources. So the first time the PPP went out, most of the banks, they prioritized around the core businesses that they had relationship with. So at that point, I felt this conviction in my heart, and I said, I'm going to write a letter to the governor of New Hampshire. So I drafted the letter, but I also realized that in order for this letter to be meaningful, I needed to include those businesses. So I started reaching out to random businesses all over the country, just started calling them and saying, hey, what are the challenges that you're experiencing? And they started telling me their testimonies. And I said, I'm writing this letter to the governor, and I'm going to send this letter as a press release. Do you want to get involved? 
every single person that I reached out to, some people were even crying on the phone saying, no one has reached out to us to see how we're doing as a business. I've gone through all my saving. I need support. But mind you, there was mil trillions of dollars that went out to small businesses. So we wrote the letter. We sent the letter out, and all the news outlet picked up the letter. So the letter picked up a lot of momentum. And then um, that evening, uh, a reporter asked the governor about the letter, and the governor was forced to say something behind it. But here is something really interesting that happened. The mayor in my city, Manchester, found out that there was a 250K HUD grant that was out there. And automatically, because of that letter, she said, hey, I don't know how we're going to do this based on the federal restriction, but I think we can allocate this money to go out to the community, small business owners that were struggling. Within less than two weeks, we deployed half of the money. Within three months, most of the businesses that got those grants, they had zero support that they received from the federal government. The program was so successful that the following year, the mayor allocated $2 million from CARE Act money to go out. So as of today, my team and I, we've helped deploy over $1.5 million to small business owners. So I, I tell you the stories because when you feel the conviction in your heart, it forces you to do something, even when you have limited resources. The opportunity is, what do you do through that conviction in your heart in order to activate? In order to make an impact, we have to do. We live in the world where a good soundbite, a good photo tile, a good you know, tweet ignites people. You get a bunch of likes. This week, we're celebrating Martin Luther King Jr., right? Martin Luther King Jr. was a doer. Do you know the saddest statistic is? During the time of Martin Luther King, less than 27% of white American approved of the work that he was doing. Today, we celebrate him, right? But just think of that real quick. Less than 27% of Americans, white Americans, disagree with the work that Martin Luther King was doing. So going back to your, the conviction that we have in our heart of doing good should drive our discovery, our curiosity to make an impact. That's my answer. Sorry for a long answer. Please don't be sorry. Thank you so much. This one is for Mr. Fuller. Um, so your organization works in tandem with Curlin Collective, a nonprofit. Uh, can you speak on the importance of collaboration in leadership and development of individuals and the community as a whole? Of course. Um, before I start to kind of jump off what you guys said, um, I want to make sure that you all know that as much as you all have to learn from us three up here, we have the similar amount to learn from you. Because you guys are the next generation, and you guys are the generations that's going to take over all these roles, all these positions, all these good things that need to be done. We need to learn from you just as much. Um, to answer your question, I teamed up with a local nonprofit called Curland Collective. Curland is the village that I work in. Curland is a village of about 5,000 people, uh, mostly made up of what is considered colored people and black people in South Africa. Um, the difference is far greater than just the color. Um, if anyone knows any history about South Africa, apartheid has just finished in 1994. 
apartheid is a social hierarchy that was put into South Africa, I believe, in 1942 by the Dutch. And apartheid is basically a social hierarchy scheme where people of South Africa that are white are at the top. You can do whatever you want. If you are colored, which is very much like my skin tone, um, or not fully black, then you're in the middle, and then you have the black people at the bottom. Um, I'm sure a lot of you know who Trevor Noah is. He talks about this quite a bit. You, you weren't allowed to date outside your race in South Africa until 1994. I was born in 1992. To see the after effects in South Africa and what they're still going through during this moment is a lot. You are all the generation that has seen what America is still going through, all, what, more than 60 years out of Jim Crow laws, and we still have these drastic issues. So you can imagine the issues that are going on in South Africa right now are very great. The reason that I teamed up with Curling Collective is because Curling Collective is on the ground every day in Curling Village. And I had to accept that these people know far more than I do about culture, the village itself, and what goes on on a day-to-day -day basis. And I know that if, I, if my program's gonna be successful, that I need to be learning at all times. I can never close a door in my brain to not seeing something. You gotta see it, you gotta hear it, and you gotta learn from it. I teamed up with Curling Collective to have a greater impact with my time there, not only on the time when I'm there with volunteer groups, but the time that I'm away. So now I can get live updates. We talk every week to see what's working, what's not working, what can we implement, what should we take away, how does the village and the community feel about it, and this is stuff that is constant. This will go on for the entire time that I run this organization, and I think it's applicable in a lot of other industries as well. You gotta learn all the time. Team up with people that know what they're talking about. You don't always have to be the smartest person. You have to be the person putting the smartest people in the room together so that you can figure it out as a group. I don't know if I answered your question, but I think so. Thank you. Yeah. All right, so it is now 6.30. Um, let's give another big thank you to our wonderful panelists. All right, guys, welcome back. Um, so we just wanted to ask you for some closing remarks. What's one thing that you would really like people to leave here with, something that you really want them to grasp and hold to their hearts and really just, you know, let it marinate in their minds? I'm going to stand up so I can see all of you. Um, a couple things to leave you with. One. A lot of you are about to be joining the workforce. And to join the workforce, you all have to take interviews. A lot of people get super stressed out about interviews. Interviews are not easy for a lot of people. I challenge all of you to take all the confidence in yourself that you have. If you need to do some stuff to find more, then find it. Be confident in who you are. The people that you're applying to jobs for, they need people to work. You need to sell yourself as much as they need to sell themselves to you. Don't think that they're just going to kick you to the curb. Go in there, 
know what you want, know who you are, and bring that into the interview and be confident about it. You'll be amazed at how many people will take your confidence alone and hire you for the job. I know this is a be a good person event and we're gonna say it a hundred times, but be a good person. If I'm gonna hire someone, let's say these four people came in for an interview, okay? They're all great. If I watch this young man walk out the door and hold the door for an elderly lady, I will hire him over these three simply because I watched him do that. Do good stuff, surround yourself with good people, and shoot for the stars. You guys have every opportunity in the world right in front of you. You guys have education, teachers that believe in you. I just learned a bunch about Sauhegan High School and how you guys take a different route to education. That's amazing. There are people all over the world that don't have that opportunity. Another awesome little fact for you guys, if you make $100,000, you're in the top 10% of the world. It's not all about money, but the opportunity, especially you college kids, it's right there in front of you. Take it and be confident in it and travel the world, see things, do things. All right, so um, I guess my last remark, and I'm going to go by the theme of Martin Luther King because um, it's Martin Luther King week. So Martin Luther King made this speech in 1967 called, What's Your Life's Blueprint? In that speech, he has three principles. The first principle is the principle of being somebody. So part of that principle is being able to have self-confidence in yourself and self-pride. The second one is being able to be excellent in what you do. So you notice the first one is talking about who you are, your being, right? Who you are as a human, how you see yourself. The second one is talking about what you do. Be excellent in what you do. Part of that is understanding what strength you have, what strength you don't have, and what you need to do in order to gain the skills that you need to, to have in order to do what you hope to do. The third one is having a principle of love, beauty, and justice. And I think if we go back to the, the theme of this conference and gathering around being good, being good is about being intentional. Not just being intentional based on the idea of a, being a good person, but being intentional based on your behavior and what you actually do. So my last remarks to you, I'm going to break it down in two halves. High school students, you got so much to explore and to learn, but I think it's really important for you to start plugging yourself in communities now, in the things that you're passionate about, that are service-based, figure out what you can do now. College student, you got to make an impact, right? I know that the pressure is there for you in so many different moving parts, but I think leverage the opportunity that, you know, your school provides for you to be socially connected to the community. And then when you graduate, there has to be certain things that you do that is not just about you, you, you. And that will give you a bigger purpose in order to, to develop the muscles of giving back being integrated, right, where you're not the beneficiary of 
the things that you're doing that other people are benefiting from me. So thank you so much for having us and having, um, you know, being able to hear from us. But I hope that there's things that you took from our panel discussion that you're making it personal for yourself. Thanks. I have one favor to ask of all of you before I leave. Um, I was on a Zoom call yesterday with all the kids from Kurland, and I told them that I would take a selfie with all of you from up here to send to them. Um, do you guys mind? Yes. All right. You guys rock. Let's go. Let's go.